what we want to do is, is share some heart, some ideas, just kind of spill of the overflow of our heart and, and clarify really what this thing is about. So number one, we are not a production. I don't know if you can even tell by the way, I've, you know, the, the non-scripted way I've been communicating over the past couple of minutes. We're not a production. Now, I'm not saying that we don't want to be excellent. I'm not saying there's not value in that. I, I, I'm, what I am saying is that church is primarily this. It's a community. It's a family. So in our hearts, when we gather together, our idea of success is not that we have a whole bunch of people in an awesome production and there's, there's you know, the rafters are, are filled. I'm not saying, I mean, that is success in one sense, but success or what we're aiming for is something of a richness of community that people from the outside community can come into and be a part of where they can experience something of love and, and spiritual richness. Does that make sense? So here's a couple things. We, we want this church to be composed of Detroit. So in other words, we, we want white people, we want black people, we want all sorts of races, all sorts of ethnicities, we want people of any, can I even say religion? Can I say sexual orientation? I'm not asking you if I can say that, I'm saying that. But, <laughs> but we do, we want, uh, we want people who are brokenhearted, we want people who are happy. We want, we want new Detroit. Um, we want people. I, I'm pretty sure when I say that, I, I speak on behalf of God. <laughs> Honestly. We want people, the people that, that comprise um, the city of Detroit. Uh, and that is, you know, let's be reminded, that is what, we're, what we are. We're a church in the city of Detroit. And we want... Uh, to see rebuilding happening. So this Isaiah 61 scripture that many of you have heard us talk about. Isaiah 61 is the scripture that Jesus refers to when he starts his earthly ministry. And uh, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And the poor, that word, that idea of being anybody with any kind of need, uh, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, which is kind of what we're been tackling over the past couple weeks to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them who are bound. Uh, so it's this idea of healing and liberating and appointing people who mourn in Zion into their place of calling, and they become rebuilders of waste places. How many of you are familiar with that scripture? You know what I'm saying? So this idea of rebuilders, that sounds great. How will that happen? Let me just say this. That happens through relationship through touching people. So we had this awesome opportunity to go into the streets of this very area and actually connect with people and not for the sake of like kind of the agenda, you know, like we hope we'll get them to come into the church. We want to go into the community and build relationship with people. And yes, you know, there, there is in a sense a hope that they could possibly come into the church, but not for the sake of numbers, for the sake of we want to love people. Let that be the defining, love people. How can you love people unless you're building a relationship with them? I, I, don't, I don't really know. You can't. And so we want to we love people, and it's in the context of relationship that we fulfill our mission. So as an example, and I hope you, I don't put you on the spot, but Jason and Courtney Faraday I think are a great example. They've been in this community for four years. As this church plant began to come into being, they felt drawn to it, and God began to put in their hearts to become part of it. They're a part of this community. 
organically existing through them is our relationships with people. Not some program, even though they are involved in programs like AWOL and JJ's house, but it's not the program, it's the people that they've already been building into relationship. AWOL, which I just referenced, is a outreach to um, women who have been sex, tra- or not just women, but uh, victims of sex, sex trafficking. So there's a relationship being built on a regular basis with these individuals. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's not a program, it's reaching people, people reaching people. So those relationships are already there. We want to join in and blow wind into that sail because they are us and we are them. Am I making sense? And so as that's how we, it's, it's walk through the doors that are right in front of us. So even us, I mean, we're, we're reaching out, not in some kind of evangelistic crusade, we're building friendship and relationship with our neighbors organically. Whether or not they ever come to Border City Church, we want to be a blessing to the people around us. You, you see what I'm saying? That is how we will walk out our calling. And if we have something of the kingdom of God inside of us, as we build relationship with people, that comes through from us to them. It's through the context of trust and relationship. So when I say it that way, it's not the pastor doing all the work of the ministry, it's the whole church. All of us are transformers of people's lives. The more you walk and the more Jesus transforms you, the more you, you have to give away, not in some ability to preach or whatever. Jesus has transformed you and you have truth to give away to, to, that will bring transformation to others. That is our calling. So if, if that doesn't appeal to you, that, that may be indicative that this isn't the place for you because that's definitely what we are called to do. Cool? So, but I think most of you would be able to, to, to say yes and amen to that. So there is, um, if I can just say, you know, I was, I was looking over social media yesterday and, um, and, you know, once again, it's just another one of these, was one of these days that is just kind of difficult in your heart. And I was reading posts from, from people that went to high school with me that I haven't really had much contact with. And, you know, there's just this thing in the atmosphere in America right now of huge division. Um, and there are people who are very much for what's happening politically right now in the country and excited about it. And if I could be so bold as to say there are people in this room who are excited about what's happening politically. And then there are other people who feel as though what we as a nation have been going down, the path we've been headed over the past eight years, let's say, uh, was heading in the direction that they want to see in this nation. And in their minds, what is happening right now is absolutely smashing up all the progress that has been made, and it is soul-destroying to the heart. And you see people on both sides clashing big time. And it, it, to me, it's heartbreaking to just see the division, if you know what I'm saying. It's, just, it's not fun. It's not nice. It's not enjoyable. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and there are people in this room also that would, that would feel, you know, <laughs> there are people on all sides of the spectrum right in this room as we speak. And I want to say that there is a need for healing in this nation. I also want to say that God has, this is an amazing opportunity to bring healing because that's actually what God is, is, is actually very good at, is, bring, is binding up the brokenhearted, to bring healing. And there are true, there are things in this sphere, here on in this earth, 
and we're not so spiritual-minded that we're no earthly good. Like, there are things of this earth that are messed up, and there are ideologies that we may or may not subscribe to, but then there are transcendent truths of the kingdom of God that have existed before the situations that we're walking in and will exist far beyond this. And those, his truth of his kingdom will remain forever, and his truth is the one thing that really brings healing to the heart. So I don't, I'm of absolute no interest in, in being political in the, in the church. It's not to say I don't have political ideas, but the minute my political ideas prohibit somebody from being able to receive Jesus from me, I feel like I've failed as a believer. I'm not interested in trying to battle that thing out. I'm, I, 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 politics are necessary. It'd be great for people to be, go out from this place having been enriched of spiritual things and, and run for office, honestly. We need people in office who are voices of, of, of the truth of God. I'm, I'm, politics are <laughs> necessary, right? I'm saying in this place, we want to be a place for everybody. And the truth of the kingdom of God far transcends the issues that we exist, that, that we battle over right now. And so God is a God of, of healing, and uh, on that note, I just want to share some, some things around um, some of what I think can bring healing to us. So if I can just say this, very simple points that I just want to make today. The gospel is about relationship and life, not religion and death. I understand that that is not news to a lot of people, uh, but I just want to speak into that. And secondarily, we're... You know, you can already see the next point, that real life comes from desire. You'll understand what that means in just a, a minute. But the gospel, the gospel is about relationship and life, not religion and death. So that, be, why, why is it even relevant with what I'm talking about? Because people are sick of church. <laughs> Many people are. And they are not wrong in feeling that way. We've had good things in church, but there, are, there is a, especially in my mind, one of the big things is a corporate, a business model of church that has become so exploitative and sometimes judgmental and sometimes just not fulfilling that inner, inner need of a human, of deep sense of community, and we could go on and on. I'm not here to bash the church. But there are many people who are sick of church because it's become religious. And Jesus was nothing about religion. And religion is death. And in fact, if you look at the four Gospels, Jesus only got angry with one people group ever. Unlike, yes, unlike most of the church today that we see, angry at the homosexuals angry at whatever the case may be, railing against them. It, it is the voice of the Pharisee still being released today. Jesus got mad at them, not the sinner. And so religion actually breeds death. And it's the most unattractive thing. Jesus actually is about life. And so let me just share kind of some of, of my, my own testimony is just to kind of, you know, reinforce that. Um, and by the way, if you have had something of a spiritual rebirth, 
study, look at how that happened. Because oftentimes I find the way in which that first happens in a person's life is indicative sometimes of God's purpose for them. In other words, how, how you came to know Jesus sometimes reveals what his purpose is for you. And for me, it was all about this idea of relationship. So I was born, I was raised in, in, in Atlanta, if you didn't know. And I, I grew up in Roman, a Roman Catholic school and a Roman Catholic church, Roman Catholic family. Nothing against Roman Catholics, by the way, right? Thank you, good. Um, but uh, but I, I never experienced something of, of Jesus in a personal way. Neither did I ever know that you could. Like, we, we went to, faithfully went to church every Sunday, and I was very serious about wanting to be a spiritual person, or, you know, I had once been told something about if you believe in the Son of God, something about, like, you'll be saved, and, and so I was like, yeah, I'm going to believe in the Son of God, you know, yeah, I believe, I believe he was, sure, I'll believe that he was raised from the dead, you know, and that's like some, somehow, like, that is my entry in the kingdom of heaven, I don't know, I was kind of like my understanding, and um, at the age of 17, I was at, like, the pinnacle of my life, in, in my senior year of high school. So this gospel goes out to the poor, you know? Let's, let's evaluate what that actually means. Like, when I received Jesus, I was anything but what you would typically describe as poor. I mean, I was like, for one thing, I was a middle-class, you know, suburban kid. Uh, but secondarily, I was a senior in high school. Like, you know, the top of the, of the, of the, uh, of the ladder, and honestly, like, time of my life. And if I'm really vulnerable, it, the, the, some of you are going to hate me for saying this, but it's just the truth of what happened. There were 10th grade girls that were, like, like right picking because I'm two years older than them. And, you know, so, I mean, I was taking advantage of that situation <laughs> and, uh, and having the time of my life. I was in a class with Monsignor Lopez, Father Richard Lopez, and he was the one who was over the religious education of the Catholic school where I was. And there was something about Father Lopez that was just like, like tangibly different. And everyone loved him. Like the kids adored him. And he was so funny and accessible and not like anything else that I'd ever seen in church. It was just like stuck out. And I remember as I was preparing for my senior year, I was getting my school uniform and, and I found myself praying. And, and it was one of these moments that looking back now, I know that I, was, I had experienced, the, as I was praying, I experienced the presence of God. Now I'm familiar with that sense. I didn't know what that was, but it was this sense of God, like this prayer going into this other place where I was feeling his nearness. And what I was praying is, I'm about to go into my senior year, and one of the senior privileges is that you have class with Monsignor Lopez, because none of the other grades get to do that. And I knew that there was something about this guy that I liked, and I, I remember praying, God, there's something in him that I feel like you want to share with me. And Lord, this year, would, whatever you want to, to give me, like, just make that happen or whatever. And I felt the presence of God. Moments interesting like that. Fast forward the clock through all of my debauchery in the first couple months of senior year and um, all the stuff of my life. I was in his class, and he, and he had me let's go through this exercise. He, he said, so everybody close your eyes, 
I'm not going to ask you to do that right now, but everybody close your eyes. And, um, and he said, I want you to think about the face of Abraham Lincoln. So you, maybe you might be able to even picture Abraham Lincoln in your mind's eye, his face. And he said, look at the characteristics. Look at the, like, how does that make you feel? Do you feel anything? Are you familiar with the, 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 the various issues of his face? Okay, th- now think about the picture in your mind's eye of your best friend, best friend in the world. So I did that. And thinking about a particular friend. Actually, remember, I couldn't, like, my girlfriend or should Carrie Franklin, my other friend, trying to quickly, and so I decided I'll, I'll picture all three of them. Yeah. So, so I was picturing these people that were very dear and precious to me. And he says, okay, now I want you to think about Jesus and ask this question. When you think about Jesus, do you feel like you know him or do you like you would your best friend, or is it more like you know about him, as is the case with Abraham Lincoln? And uh, so then he had us open our, our eyes, and he, and, he, and he went on to say, if you feel like you don't know Jesus in the way that you know your best friend, then the gospel is amiss in your life, because that's the whole purpose of the gospel. Like that thought, now some of you may have been in church, you know, for a long time. That was totally revolutionary. I'd never heard such a thing before, that I could, like, somehow personally know him. And he was saying, in fact, it should be that you know him better than any human relationship that you have. Because he's the most important relationship and the central relationship out of which comes all other relationships. See, actually, he should be the one you know the most. Now, I had to realize I did not know him. And then he said this scripture, which had been this scripture that had been on my mind for several months previous. Not that I thought a lot about the scripture, but he said this scripture, seek and you shall find. Jesus promised that. And, uh, and if you seek that relationship, he promises you'll find it. And I remember, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that is, that's what Jesus meant. Like I'd always wondered, what the heck does this seek and you will find thing? Like if I lose something... Because, like, I've lost tons of stuff and prayed that he'd help me and never... So that's what he's talking about. So I go on in my day, and uh, that night I went to bed. And as I was going to bed, I had this, like, feeling that there's something I was thinking about earlier today that I need to pray about. And then then I remembered, oh, yeah, that, that thing in Monsignor Lopez's class. And I began to pray. And as I did, I just began to, for the first time, it was like I was, I, I was just being vulnerable and real with God and, and acknowledged, I don't feel like I know you. But if this thing is real, you said, seek and you will find. And so, Lord, I don't even know how to do that. I don't know how to seek, but I'm just telling you, I'm seeking you. Can you help me find you? And I, I had that once again for the second time in my life, this sense of the presence and nearness of God. Just this there on my bed, and, and I, as I'm praying, I don't even know how to seek you. And re, let's remember, I've never heard somebody talk about being born again, ever, or being saved and all that kind of stuff, or how to receive Jesus, never heard any of that. I've never, even Monsignor Lopez didn't actually share the gospel. He just said that we should know, know, be able to know him. As I'm praying, I don't even know how to seek you. Help me to find you. I remember these things that I had heard somewhere, somehow, about repenting and about receiving Jesus as Lord, (laughs) as a way of salvation. 
and I begin to say, Lord, I, I repent. And I start trying to itemize all the things I need to repent of. And then I'm like, I don't even know, like, all the, I'm just, I'm repent. <laughs> I'm just, like, I, I, I am a sinner. Like, just forgive me and lead me to a righteous life. And then, and then I begin to realize uh, that something about confessing that he's Lord. And in that moment, it all began to make sense, like this penny dropping and I, and, and I realize I'm supposed to give my life to him. And so I begin to say, Jesus, I receive you as my Lord. You're my king. Lead me for the rest of my life. I give it all to you. And as I did, I had this vision, this like picture in my mind that I'm going to be here on this earth and Jesus is going to be in heaven, but there's going to be this connection between me and him and he's going to lead me in this earth and he's going to do through me what he wants to do. And, and so I, I just was like... I worshipped for the first time in my life. I, I was, I was fellowshipping in the presence of God. But the whole thing that drove me there was not anything other than relationship. This idea that I, I didn't need like more rules and regulations and things to do or whatever else. The idea, the thing that caught my, that, that, that grabbed my heart was this idea that I could know God. But in knowing God, there was this revelation, this sense that came with it that he would have to be my God. Not me being God and wanting him to be how I want him to be, to follow him and to allow him to have his way. As simple as that. That night, the Bible would say, and most evangelicals would say, I was born again. Like as in I received Jesus no altar call thing of coming down in a church service, no anything like that. And I went for 12 months from that moment of not even knowing anybody else who had ever had that experience. And so, I, like, stuff started to change in my life, and I'll talk about that in just a second, but I had no other relationship. I know this is real because I know it happened outside of any kind of, to me, outside of any kind of, community where I kind of got absorbed into the, the, the uh, as Nietzsche, Nietzsche would say, the, the opioid of the masses, if you know what I'm saying. The, the delusion of religion. I know I wasn't in the, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> when I, said, I know I wasn't just being brainwashed by some group because there was no group. And for 12 months, I, my life began to change. I know this thing is real. And it's about relationship, not religion and, and death. So, Real life comes from desire. So what, what are we talking about there? I, I, I'm wanting to share these things because we want to be free in this place and build this church community around the way Jesus and his kingdom are built. And Jesus and his kingdom are built around desire. And what I mean by that is there is nothing compulsory in the kingdom of God. What the will of God is, is that here on this earth, he desires people to connect with him, that he would put his desires into their heart, and when you have desire, tell me if I'm wrong, when you live out of desire, that's where real life happens. In other words, if I'm made to do something, it stinks. Like, I hate it. But if I have a desire to do it, 
it's life-giving. And, and the way that that happens in terms of the kingdom of God is that God, through relationship, imparts desire. So where do we, where do we get this? Look at this scripture with me. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you. I love this passage of scripture to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I know we've probably heard that before. We've maybe seen it cross-stitched on a pillow or on your refrigerator magnet. I don't know. But look at that with me again. For it is God who works in you to will. That means he works in you to will with him, to want with him, to desire with him, and out of that to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In other words, our good college try to try to make this church plant happen in Detroit, or whatever the case may be, is not going to fulfill his good purpose. Hard work and effort. Are we in agreement around, around that? It is God working in us to will. And when you and I will what he wills for his church in Detroit... We do it out of a sense of drive and passion and the same thing that led Jesus to a cross on behalf of un, uh, uh, unqualified, what am I looking for? Unworthy sinners, exactly. The same passion will drive us to do what he wants to do in the city of Detroit. It is God who works in you both to will and, and, and to do of good pleasure. So if I can go back to that story. So I go 12 months after having this conversion experience, not knowing one other believer, and one of the first things that happens is I begin to feel bad about getting drunk and getting high. I know you don't like to hear your pastor referencing the fact that he got high, but it, it happened a whole lot. <laughs> Let me be honest with you. So, <laughs> so I began to feel bad, not because the preacher told me, not because some Christian told me that it's wrong. I began supernaturally. I, even when I, the moment that I received Jesus, honestly, I was not repenting of getting drunk and high. Why? Because I didn't know it was bad. Like, I didn't grow up in a church culture that suggested such, you know, and church that I was a part of, you go to a potluck dinner and everyone gets drunk, <laughs> right? So, but God, and that's why I know this thing is real. No man did this to me. That's just like the Apostle Paul said, I, I didn't learn it by flesh and blood, but a revelation. It was the same thing. I, I know this thing is real. And by the way, if you get drunk and get high, you're still good here. This is what happened in my life. I began to feel what we call convicted of this thing. And by the time I was in my first year of college... I was absolutely miserable. So what I'm saying to you is that the gospel came to me at a high light of my life, a high part of my life, and within a few months, it had worked me to the place of absolute poverty. <laughs> I, was, I was completely miserable. And it's because every friend that I had, the whole social network that I existed in and didn't know anything outside of that, all revolved around things that I was feeling actually broke my communion with God. That actually brought him displeasure. And so he began to work in me to will. And I began to feel bad about it. And I remember driving down the three-hour trek back from my parents' house back to college after Christmas break. And I began to cry as I was praying. And I said, God, I feel so bad. I feel like you're not happy. I don't know how else to live. I don't know what else to do. 
But if, if I need to stop do, getting drunk and high and partying and all that stuff, if I need to do that, you're going to need to send somebody who can help me with that. The next day, I'm in my, in my uh, dorm, dormitory bouncing a basketball, and my friend from the dorm room next door comes over to me and says, uh, uh, Walter Bowden, and, and we're talking, and he's talking about how he, you know, I'm talking about what I did, you know, while we were gone and parties that I went to and whatever, and what about you? He's like, well, I, I don't, I used to, you know, drink and all that stuff. I don't anymore. I used to, or at least get drunk and that kind of stuff. And I said, I said, what? You don't? Like, how can you be 19 and say that? And, uh, and, he, and he says, well, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Now, to you, that seems like, okay. I had never heard anyone say those words to me in my life. And I remember I stopped the basketball and looked up at him. I was sitting Indian style on the floor. And I looked at him. And I was like, what did you say? And, like, and the look of horror on his face, like the words had come out. And he was like, come back now. He thought I was like, going to just reject him completely. And, and, and so from there, I meet this person. He invites me to life ministry, the campus ministry. I meet this whole network of people who had had the same experience that I did. I didn't know other people in the world existed. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not joking. I thought I was the only person in the world who, who had had this experience. I'd never met another born-again Christian, ever. And I uh, meet all these people and had the, the courage to make that, to repent of that sin that God had worked in to will, and, and then that enabled me to act and to make some changes that opened up a place of fellowship and communion with God that I had not been able to enjoy because my relationship with him had been hindered. I had been feeling what he wants, but I had been retracting my heart and rejecting what he was wanting to do, and it broke. It was breaking my intimacy with him. And from that experience, him leading me as I yielded to it, I was able to step in and make another leap of faith and obedience to him, which unleashed a whole other dimension of relationship with him. And I have found from there... The whole journey has been one step of faith and obedience after the other. The key is he is Lord. And when he begins to work and to will in you, to, to will is to not put that fig leaf back over and try to hide from him and him from you, but to just open up to him and allow him to do what he wants so that you can act and keep that place clean, right? So, so he wants real life to come from desire. I was experiencing death so long as I was resisting him. The moment I began to yield to the desires that he was working in me, I began to experience life. Desire, my friends, comes from trusting God. So Psalms 37.4. I love this scripture. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So I went to the Detroit or the uh, auto show, the Detroit auto show, just a week or two ago. Anybody else go to the auto show? All right, shame on you guys. Come on, Detroit. We actually love this city. It's the Detroit auto show. It's like one of the biggest things of this city. Anyways, so I went there and um, and I saw an infinity. Now I'm I, actually I'm not a big car guy. I'm not like lusting over cars, but let's just pretend that I was. And, uh, and I saw an infinity, which is a quite, some of those are quite nice automobiles. And let's say, as a child of God, 
that I had a desire in my heart for an infinity. Now, does that scripture suggest that if I delight in the Lord, maybe as Jason's leading us in worship and I delight in him, that he will give me an infinity, the desire of my heart? Is that a reasonable translation of this, uh, not translation, but, but interpretation of this, this scripture? Actually, no. The idea is, as we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will impart into us desires into our hearts so that the desires that he has in his heart in heaven will find home in a human agent here on the earth and from that fuel of desire his will will be able to be accomplished in the earth. But the idea of delight, because you may say what does delight mean? Does that mean I just stand and clap and kind of do the you know, charismatic two-step or whatever and is that what delighting is all about? No. Delight, the idea, listen to this, is, is actually, and some of you guys might be slightly offended, I, I certainly don't want to, but, but just to be truthful to the idea of the scripture, that passage of scripture is actually imagery that would very much mirror intimate relationships between a man and a female. So the idea of delight, let's, uh, let me just share with you some other kind of expounded, amplified, if you want, ideas of that Hebrew word translated into English as delight would be to become soft, effeminate, delicate. So in other words, when I was walking that journey and God was beginning to make me feel bad and make me feel convicted about some things in my lifestyle, it wasn't until I softened myself to become receptive. Can I take it a step further with our imagery without, without bothering anybody? In the same way that a female receives a male in a vulnerable way is the same idea of delighting, of, of being delicate, of being soft, of being receptive, as opposed to this. So follow me. As, as I was on this journey resisting what God was trying to show me, I could not have that desire fulfilled. The moment that I opened up my heart and, and said, God, nevertheless, not my will, yours be done, desires could be imparted into my heart. That fueled my ability to walk out the way God wanted me to walk out. Making sense? So be vulnerable, yielding, open, and he will actually put his desires in you. And then... He brings to pass his will that has now become your will. Not the infinity that you wanted at the car show. That's your will. As you delight yourself and become receptive to become a home of his desires, then he will not only give you this, those desires, but he will give them to you in the sense of causing them to come to pass the kingdom of God coming, the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven, which is our mandate. Isn't it wonderful to know that the whole thing operates by desire and not by putting in the whole college try and let's get this church thing and ministry thing done. Actually, he wants your heart. That's really what he wants. And I think that that's what people in Detroit need to come into. Not religion that puts something on them and expects something out of them, but points them to Jesus who loves them and leading them to a revelation of his love that they would become vulnerable before him. And before long, people who are broken begin to receive desires of the will of God. 
And they begin to live out of those desires and begin to live in a transformed reality. That is the gospel. The reality of the gospel. And so, finally, the bottom line is trusting God comes from knowing his love. I mean, as simple as that is, that will always, always be the case. Humans are born, you and I, and even after we have our experience with God, your conversion, salvation experience, what I ex went through, you may take note, when, after I had that experience, I didn't inherently trust God. I trusted him with my life, but then once he started showing me what he wanted, I stopped trusting him. Like, oh, get thee behind me, God. I, re I know you want me to do what? I didn't trust him. It's as we, we experience and know the love of God, the human heart is able, to, uh, is able to actually put ourselves in a place of trust. In other words, he is good. And can I just say this? As we trust him, we find out his goodness. There's an element of his goodness that we'll never know. And that's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to take that step of yielding to in obedience and in faith, and you see that it's actually way better the very thing that you were once scared of doing. Life like, is way better on the back end, but you never know until you, until you place your feet on the other side of obedience. And so if you're of any kind of, um, uh, if you're not really sure if, if what I'm saying is true about the love of God or if you're of any level of doubt, let me just kind of, share with you one perspective that maybe you've never th thought of. I'm a father. So we've got some fathers in the room and some mothers. I think any parent would understand um, there is something of an innate love that you have for your kids that it's just like no other love in, in an earthly sense. It's, you just have a protective mechanism and love for them. And, and I think the greatest pain for me would be to see either of my two sons, maybe perhaps my wife as well, but let's talk about parental, would be to see either of my two sons suffering something and to see it and to physically see it and not be able to go and do something to help. Anyone else feel that way? That would be absolutely excruciatingly painful. To see it, to have the ability to do something and to not be able to respond. So having said that, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Abram and Abraham, this you know, this, this thing of God promising him a son. He was old. Wife couldn't have kids. God promises a son. He chooses to believe. And finally, years later, Isaac, the son of promise, is born. And he's waited his whole life. In fact, his very name meant father. And God changed his name to mean father of nations. It was his identity. Everything about this man wanted to be a father. And finally, he had received the son of promise. And when he did, what did God do? He said, Abram, my boy, that son I've given you, I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to kill him as worship to me. <laughs> Has anyone ever thought that one through? Like, what, like practically, like a real man had to hear that from God. I heard, you know, Paul, I want you to stop getting high and getting, getting drunk. Like, that's, that's nothing compared to I want you to kill your son, the son that you love. And so Abram, Abraham, at that time, Abraham takes, takes Isaac. Can you imagine the awkwardness of that morning, waking up, and Isaac is outside and kind of going through his normal routine, and you're looking at him, and you're knowing what's going down, and you're, like, thinking through, how, how am I going to 
initiate this? What do I say? You know, what, like what's the, what's the kind of like roundabout way of getting, you know, how do you do that? How do you initiate that obedience? So he tells Isaac, going to go up to the mountain, my boy. We're going to go worship the Lord together. And what do you, can you imagine saying, me saying that to Peter? Peter, my boy, let's go worship the Lord. It's sick, actually. And he said, I need you to gather some wood for the sacrifice. We're going to worship to the Lord. And so Isaac carries this wood, and, and he goes up the hill. And, and as, as they get to this hill, put the wood in place, we're going to make a sacrifice. And then, Isaac, I need you to get down on this. Takes the knife out, and he's about to kill his son with hand raised, about to slaughter his son in obedience to God. Now, I know this is a little hectic, but I'm just telling you the scripture. With hand raised, an angel comes and stops him and says, essentially, you were, you were being tested to see if you would be faithful to give your own son. Why would God do that to Abraham? Have you ever wondered, like, you know, really, God? Like, isn't that kind of sick? Because Abraham, to become the father of the faith, the progenitor from which the multitude of nations would come, the family of God in the earth, for him to become the gateway through which that would come, the family line, if you could say, the, the, through which Israel would come, through which the Messiah would come, through which all who would come into the family of God through faith in the Messiah, all of that started with Abraham. And for him to stand in that place on the earth as the gateway, he had to identify with the Father. The Father had his son taken up to a mountain, took the wood that would be the sacrifice for that sacrifice on his own back, walked up that mountain, and in the moment that, that Jesus was dying, you remember the words, God watching it, beholding it, having been with Jesus through the Holy Spirit for three and a half years, upon him, surrounding him, in that moment, Jesus cried out at around three o'clock in the afternoon, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the Father had to turn his back completely upon, from Jesus and Jesus die entirely by himself. God feeling the pain of a father not being able to watch, not being able to do anything about it, Jesus taking on the pain without any help from his father. Why am I saying this? This sounds horrible. Because God did that so that you and I wouldn't have to. God did that as a forever testimony to how he loves us. He couldn't love us any further than that. If what I'm saying is true, then we can actually trust him. We can actually know that his every single thing that he leads us into, regardless of how difficult it may be, regardless of the instinct of wanting to hide from him and reject what he's wanting to do, but rather to become uh, vulnerable and open and receptive to what he wants to do, even if it feels crazy sometimes, even if it feels like we're going up on that hill to die ourselves, which oftentimes it does, on the back end, it's the goodness of God of working his will into the earth through that. So, Jason, would it be cool? Could we, I, I would love for us just to sing that song again of um, you're, you are good. Yeah, I felt earlier as we, were, as we were worshiping that that is something that we as a church community would be a good thing for us to, to, um, to sing together. To, to refrain, to, to confess and to proclaim his goodness 
But as we're doing that, I want to encourage you, and if you want to stand up, that would be, be great. If you want to sit down, that's perfectly fine. I would encourage you, as we're, as we're proclaiming that, not just to proclaim words of a song, proclaim it over your life, like in the real, in the practical, and in any area where there may be something of resistance, of something that we're wanting to resist from God. Proclaim you are good and yield to him. Can we do that?